All right, so I would like you to pretend like you never heard of Jesus before, and if you have never heard of him before, I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. I want you to pretend like you haven't thought about him because the story we're going to read this morning might be a little bit odd if you had never heard of Jesus before, because the story is about God becoming man, it's a true story, he becomes man, and what are the two things that he does, principal things that he does in the story we're going to look at in John 2? He goes to a party and makes wine out of water, that's one thing, and then in the second story, he goes to church and he busts up a marketplace. You probably, if you had never heard of Jesus before, you probably wouldn't think if God became man, he would be doing those things. But he does. And I think the gospel of John, the author, he wants us to be in wonder. He wants us to ask, who is this? And why is he doing these things? He is very concerned about Jesus's identity. So bear that in mind. As we read John chapter 2, it's going to be up on the screen. I'm going to be reading the New International Version. I'm going to read the whole thing, but then we're going to cover it in two sections. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everybody brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. 
Then they believed the scripture and the words that he had spoken. If you look on your outline, there's an introduction and then the two points. And I need to tell you this introduction because it's got to frame the two points. If you were here last week, one of the applications that I encouraged you with was to read the Bible more carefully, more closely, and ask us a lot, ask it a lot of questions. And you may have heard these stories before, Jesus turning water to wine or cleaning the temple. But did you notice that they're tied together? There's at least four, four observations that I want to point out. On, in verse 1 and in verse 20, there's the repetition of the third day. Each story is motivated by a request. That's number two. So Jesus' mother infers a question, a request to make more wine, and then the Jews ask for a sign. A third repetition or observation is that Jesus makes things. He makes wine, he makes a whip. And then lastly, each little story ends with the disciples believing in Jesus. Verse 11, they put their faith in him, and then verse 22, they believe his words. So two things I want to point out there or cover before we get into the, the meat of it is the third day. In verse 1, if you look, I don't know if it's up on the screen. YZ, if you want to put that up there. Uh, on, in verse 1, it says, on the third day, a wedding took place. Now, in the, uh, in the original, there was no chapters or verse numbers. And so if you remember from last week, Jesus is talking to Nathaniel. And he says, you'll see greater things than these, and you'll see the angels of God ascending and ascending on the Son of Man. And on the third day, there was a wedding. Okay, there's not a break there. So why would he say that? Why would he say on the third day? The third day of what? You know, did it matter what day the wedding was on? If it was on a Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, does it matter? What do you think? Yeah, it does matter. I also mentioned last week in John chapter 1 that uh, there were these time markers in chapter 1. Now, I don't have it up on the screen, but you have to trust me or look at your Bible. He has a number of phrases called the next day. And if you look at those, there are basically uh, four segments, four days there in chapter 1. And there are three days here. What's four plus three? Seven. So, Reese, big deal, seven. Do you remember how the Gospel of John started? In the beginning, what is he quoting? Genesis. How many days of creation are there? Seven. It's coming together now, right? Now, it's possible that John is uh, not doing what I'm saying, that he is saying that Jesus and all these events from chapter one were in so close proximity that it literally was the next day. Okay, it's possible. But given that everybody was on walking by foot, I think what he's trying to do is frame it. Again, the story of Jesus is on the level of creation. And so that means what happens in chapter 2 is what's, what's a good picture of what the Sabbath is all about. And that's where the title on your outline comes from, is that Sabbath brings glory and cleansing. The repetition of the disciples believing also helps 
us understand John's framing here. Again, verse 11, Jesus reveals his glory and they put their faith in him. And verse 22, they believe the scriptures and the words he had spoken. John wants his audience to see Jesus for who he is and put their faith in him so that they have eternal life. Jesus is the promised one who would come and die for the sin of the world and come back to life to show that death was defeated. And in John chapter 2, I believe what John is saying is that this, this Sabbath rest that Jesus offers for those who believe in him, there's a picture of the beginning and the end. He's revealing his glory and kicking things off and getting started, and he is dying and being resurrected. And the disciples are looking back on the event as if, you know, from the from the future, looking back at the past and saying, he did it. And so with that introduction, let's begin getting into these stories. And you can see on your outline, there's two points I had there, accessible glory and true cleansing. So the first story of water to wine. This scene here of Jesus going to a wedding is not like uh, any others in the Gospels. It's, it's a little different because... Uh, Jesus is going to a wedding and going to a party. He is not healing someone. He's not casting out a demon. He's not doing, uh, at least as he gets into the story, anything miraculous. Uh, people go to weddings. It's a very normal thing to do. But at this wedding, there's a problem. And wine was supposed to be served at these weddings. You weren't supposed to run out. Uh, I read that if you did run out, not only would you potentially be made fun of, but you could actually be taken to court, <laughs> like sued. This guy didn't provide enough wine. So this bride and a groom, this couple getting married, they must have been connected to Jesus and his family somehow because Jesus' mother is there as well. And she notices or gets this info or intel that they've run out of wine. Maybe they didn't plan for all the guests that were coming or maybe they were cash-strapped and didn't have enough to buy. Whatever it is, we don't know. But she tells Jesus, and the implication there, based on his response, is that she wants him to do something about it. And then he says, my time has not yet come, but then he goes and does it anyway. And if you look at maybe your footnote, Jesus makes about 120 to 180 gallons of wine. And it's a good wine. Verse 10, the, uh, the MC, he gets to drink it. He doesn't know what the whole backstory. And he's like, wow, this stuff is great. He calls the, the groom in and pulls him aside and, and tells him this. Like, you saved the best for last. And imagine the groom this guy who maybe had heard that we're running out of wine, all of a sudden the MC comes to him and says, man, you saved the best to last. He has no clue what, what happened. How It doesn't say, I wish it did, but I can only imagine that he was thinking, oh my goodness, who, who did this to me? Who saved me from this embarrassment? And who blessed me so well? Not only did Jesus save him from embarrassment, but he lets him take the credit, at least in the eyes of the MC. And doing this, Jesus reveals his glory because the disciples see it. They're the ones who know it and put their faith in him. What does this mean? I have two things to point out or to 
make a point on. And one is that Jesus is like us and Jesus is not like us. Jesus is like us. In John 1 from last week, verse 14, uh, it says that we, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Remember, that was talking about the tabernacle, God's glory coming down, but it was not approachable. Even Moses couldn't go in the tent. But here, it's very different. Jesus is very approachable. He's going to a wedding with his earthly mom and his friends. And the people at the wedding are conversing, drinking, having fun, celebrating. Think about it. If this was a modern-day wedding... And Jesus came to the reception. You could be doing the cha-cha slide with Jesus. He's part of a culture. He's part of the normal. He's, he's like, uh, he's your friend. He's, he's normal life. And, and he's just like us. And he's also like us because people ask questions. People ask you for help. Mary asked Jesus a question. This is the glory of God embodied in human form. And so Jesus is like us, and he is accessible. But he's also not like us, because he's God in the flesh. He is the new tabernacle. He's the new temple. And in verse 4, when Jesus says, you know, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. What he is indicating there or suggesting is that if he does this, the implications for this are huge because what this means is that he is beginning the journey to the cross. In the book of John, that phrase, my time has not yet come, that time, or maybe it's translated the hour, uh, that is something that John repeats and it's not until Jesus is right at the end, right before he is, he is uh, brought to the cross, where it says that his time has come. And he says that in John 13.1 and 17.1. That is when he dies for the sin of the world. Jesus is not like us. Because when we would be faced with that same path that he took to the cross, we would give up. We would not persevere. He gets all glory and honor. No one else can be the perfect sacrifice. And Jesus takes our place and substitutes himself for us for the punishment of sin. And even in this story, I mentioned it already, you get the, you get the sense for the blessing of the substitution. Even the groom gets blessed by Jesus. He gets saved from public embarrassment and gets this credit that he didn't deserve. And that's how it is with Jesus. John 1.16, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. In Jesus, though he is not like us, we have access to this glory. And Mary's request to ask for more wine is a great picture of this. Because in Jesus, you and I and Mary and the disciples, we have access to Jesus. We have access to glory. You can go directly to him at any time with any request. 
And I love that this story is like this, that's so like normal and normal problems, right, that we have in life. And Jesus is approachable and, and accessible to bring those normal problems to him. So consider this. When you think about God, is he too big to ask for your small requests? Or is God too small in your viewpoint to even make requests at all, big or small? I remember in high school when I didn't have a lunch pack, I asked my mom for lunch money. And she always gave it to me. And it was never a big deal. And I don't think I ever really thought about it. I just kind of counted on it. How much more so the God of the universe that we can ask requests of. As I was working on this message, I was just convicted that I tend to only pray and, and, and think about God in the realm of like the big things, like major illnesses or financial burdens or big life decisions, but not so much in, in, in prayer or thankfulness for you know, uh, getting up this morning, my car running to get over here, or praying for uh, a conversation that's about to happen with our kids around the dinner table or something like that. But if Jesus cares enough to help a family from public embarrassment and giving them not just wine, but really good wine, he can do the same for you and me. The disciples see this and they put their faith in Jesus. And that is what we need to do as well. We need to look at Jesus, look at who he is, and put our faith in him. What if we saw just a fraction of his power and love for us? We see all of who he is and what he's done for us. And then we also realize we have access to that. If we were to realize that, I bet we would pray more. I bet we would talk with God more once we realize who he is and how accessible he is through Jesus. So on this Sabbath day in John 2, we see Jesus who has all glory and honor at a wedding, making water to wine, based on a request from his mother, and kicking off his journey to the cross. Jesus also does something that catches people's attention in the second story when he cleans the temple, verses 12 to 22. Verse 13, it says the context is the Passover. So uh, this is the most important celebration of the Jews. This is the celebration from God uh, rescuing his people out of slavery into freedom out of Egypt. And this is very interesting. When Moses led the people out of Egypt, do you remember what the first and last miracles were? We call them the 10 plagues. But the first one was water to blood. And the last one was the lamb sacrificing so that the people go free and the firstborn would die instead. 
very similar to this, these two things here. So this is the Passover. This is the scene. And Jesus is going into the temple area at the biggest festival of the year for the Jewish people. And he is disgusted. So much so, in verse 15, he takes time out of his busy schedule, gets the materials, and makes a whip. His, uh, his previous miracle was on the down low, because some people didn't know about it, but this one is so public. He is using a whip. And just imagine the scene. Like, there's all this hubbub happening, and Jesus is out there with a whip. And there's tables flipping and money rolling down the sides and people upset and cows yelling. I don't know if cows, but there's animals all over the place. And what happens here? Jesus doesn't get arrested, like I would expect, He gets asked a question about his authority. And he answers them by saying, destroy this temple and he will raise it in three days. Basically, he's saying, I'll give you an answer. I will be be, uh, killed and then resurrected in three days. And then the disciples, again, they believe what Jesus said and they believe the scripture, which is what we call the Old Testament. There's three things that I want to focus on what this means. The first thing is that Jesus will defend God's glory and reputation. He will defend it. He says in verse 16 to those who sold doves, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? I would imagine that what some of these uh, businessmen were doing was, was good. It's not completely bad. Some people needed to buy animals for sacrifice, and some people needed help with some currency exchange, you know, whatever. Not completely bad. But what they were doing was right in the middle of the temple area, impeding the worship of God, particularly for the Gentiles, and nobody was stopping it. The religious leaders were not stopping it. The Romans weren't stopping it. They didn't care. Nobody was stopping this from happening. And to give you a sense of just how icky this is, uh, I want you to look in the back there. So look in the back under the TV. You can see next to Kyle. Don't look at Kyle. To the left, there's a giving box back there. That's where you, you give to church or you give online. But imagine if the leaders of church here decided we're not going to take checks anymore or credit cards we're only taking cash and you're probably in the modern age we don't have cash anymore right and you know i i like to think of myself as entrepreneurial so i'm going to stand in the back there and i will accept your checks credit cards paypal whatever and i will give the cash for you so you can give to church for only a 20 percent fee it's a pretty good deal it used to be 30, but now it's 20, just for you today. Imagine if I did that every week, and you couldn't give the church, but you're like, fine. Why aren't the elders doing anything about this? Does that feel icky and wrong? Jesus is on the side of the oppressed. He is on the side of those who want to follow him even when leaders are not. 
He will defend God's glory. He will make sure that there is nothing impeding that pathway between man and God. The disciples uh, see all this and they remember Psalm 69. That's the quote there where it says, zeal for your house will consume me in verse 17. And this is a psalm from David about one who suffers on God's behalf. And so if you feel helpless or stuck or unsure about life or unsure about something else or what to do or you see an injustice and wonder why isn't anybody doing anything about this? You need to turn your heart to Jesus. He is the one who stands in the gap. He is the one that makes that way clear between you and God. He is the one who knows the will for your life. He will defend God's honor and serve his people at cost to himself. So turn your gaze to him. A second thing I think this story shows is that it shows Jesus's authority. He does this very public thing, cleans the temple courts from all these, these businesses or businessmen that are uh, working there. And like I mentioned before, I am very surprised that you don't read in verse 17 where it says, and they promptly arrested him with a thousand soldiers or something. He, that doesn't happen. You know, it's like if someone went to Walmart and started pushing all the uh, you know, attendants out of the way, like you'd be in handcuffs faster than you knew it. But Jesus here gets a question posed to him. He doesn't get, he rested. And the question is one of authority. And he says to his answer of that question, destroy the temple, I'll raise it again in three days. That statement right there, I don't know if you can see it. Is it up there? Yeah. Verse 19. It doesn't come across in the English, but I find it it fascinating. Here's what one of the translator notes says. The imperative here is really more than a simple conditional imperative, like if you destroy. It's a semantic force that's more like go ahead and do this thing and see what happens. Jesus knows what's going to happen. And it says in verse 22 that after he was raised, the disciples recalled it and they believed what he had said. He had the authority to clean out the temple because he was the temple. He was the glory of God. He was the one that would predict this would happen to him. He gave himself to, for the punishment of sin and was resurrected. He has the authority. Thirdly, Jesus offers true cleansing. What Jesus does in the temple courts here is a picture of what needs to happen in all of our hearts. And no matter who you are or what you think, even in your best desire to worship God, you have sin that separates you from God and you need Jesus to clean you. Remember, he will stand for the oppressed. He will stand for God's glory He will rescue the lowly and the burdened. He has the authority, the will, and the desire to do it. But you must trust in him and believe what the Bible says about him. There's those two things at the end of verse 22. The disciples believed the scripture, which will be called the Old Testament, and the words Jesus had spoken. Perhaps 
the disciples were thinking of Isaiah 1 verse 18 when they were thinking of Jesus and the scriptures here. It says this, where God offers cleansing. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. That's from the Old Testament. And Jesus' own words. This is one of my favorite sentences in the Bible. John 6, 37. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Jesus said that. And it's an incredible promise because no matter how dirty you are, no matter how you see yourself, if you come to Jesus, he says, those who come to me, I will never drive away. The disciples believed the Old Testament. They believed Jesus' words. And it was in retrospect after they saw him come back to life after he had died on the cross. So consider your own heart. Where do you need to come to Jesus? What areas do you need to lay at his feet to give him your, your mess, your dirt, to get his help, to get his relief, to get his forgiveness? Because he is the one who offers true cleansing. And just like in Genesis, God does the work and then he rests Man benefits from God's work. So let's conclude our time here. Hopefully I made the case that this is happening on the Sabbath in John 2, or that's how John frames it. And the Sabbath represents true rest. And because we are doing Hebrews in a couple of weeks, I wanted to give you a little taste of Hebrews as we end. Hebrews talks about true rest in chapter 4. He says this, For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. In chapter 4, verse 9 through 11, the author goes on to say this, There remains then a Sabbath rest for God's people. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. So what he's talking about there, he's talking about the the ancient Israelites. They saw those miracles. They were there. They witnessed them. But for some reason, they decided we're not going to follow God. And the warning for us is that we could come to church, we could do all these wonderful, great things for God, but without Jesus, it's meaningless. We would miss out on that Sabbath rest. You could give all your time, energy, money, serve God, even as Paul says, give your body to the flames. But without Jesus, you cannot be saved. So you must enter this Sabbath rest, opened by the way of Jesus and when you see Jesus clearly, I think that you'll have that, that unwritten response as the groom did in verse 10. Who, who am I?
that one of my guests at this party would do this for me. Let's pray. And I would invite up the worship team. God, thank you for doing this for us. We so often don't see how good it is that Jesus would die for us. That, that you would be not only that and cleanse us from our sin, but you'd be accessible. That we could ask you at any time about anything to have you on our side. To know that you provided for us and still provide for us. Help us to live with wonder and amazement. Help us to dive into the scriptures to see where you're at, who you are, and what we can learn from what you have to teach us. Help us to see Jesus more clearly this day. Amen.